This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Oh, yeah. We're almost 10 episodes in, and that took us several takes. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're rusty. It's been a few weeks. Rusty. Oh. Uh, You guys will get that in a minute. Well, don't worry about it. Just remember (laughs) that Matt said rusty. Uh, I was referring to my uncle. You have an uncle named Rusty? Yeah, my uncle Rusty. He's got a red beard like me. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a cool dude. A lot of people think he looks like either Chuck Norris or Danny Bonaducci. Yeah. I mean, that's a coin toss of- uh... I think he, you know, maybe physically hopes to be more Chuck Norris, uh, but they're both not great people. <laughs> do, you, do, you, um, do you remember when Conan was still on Late Night and he had the Walker Texas Ranger lever? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because- uh, there was some corporate merger, so NBC was part of the same company that owned whatever production company made that show. So he would just, like, mid-sentence just pull this giant lever and it would play a random clip of Walker, <laughs> Texas Ranger, usually kicking somebody off a ledge. Or I think there was one where, like, a kid told him he had cancer or something. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Um, but great. D- do you remember uh, it's a TV show? Um... Twilight Zone. No. Outer Limits. No. Small Wonder. No. Three's Company. No. Um, Hollywood Stars. It was on HBO. Hollywood Squares. Uh, It was on HBO. It was really popular. Uh, Sopranos. It had dragons. Game of Thrones. Yes. Do you remember that show? Mr. Show. Oh, no. I got it. Game of Thrones. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you remember that show? Yeah. Where are you going with this? It just seems like after the finale, it's just like nothing. You know, it's like dra- dropped off the face of the earth. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's, maybe it's just me. No? Uh, I don't know. I think maybe the people who are angry about it are still probably venting on the internet about it. Yeah, maybe. Um, it just feels like the cultural footprint of a lot of these big shows or movies or whatnot. They just, they come and then they're gone. Maybe Game of Thrones is a bad example, although I don't see a lot of people really talking about it as much online. But that could be the circles that I'm in. But with streaming shows, you know, there's all this fervor about when the latest season is going to drop. It premieres. Everyone's talking about it for a weekend. Everyone watches the whole thing in a weekend. And then it's gone until the next season. I've been deliberately trying not to binge stuff lately. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, um, My wife and I, just started The Sopranos from the beginning. Okay. I've been limiting myself to two episodes a week. Is this your first time? With the first half of it. In, so you've never seen the back half? No. No, other way around. In college, oh. um, my junior year, my roommate, a couple of my roommates were really into it, and I hadn't seen it at that point. So at that that was maybe the fourth season? It was the end. I, I remember watching through the end of the series. Okay. But I had never seen the beginning. So we're watching it now, limiting ourselves to two episodes a week. Some weeks are good. I'll watch one one night, watch one a few nights later. Some nights are some weeks are bad, and I'll watch them both back to back. We finished the first season of Barry, and we decided we're going to stop. We're going to watch some other things. Yeah. And then when we get through a season of those things, we'll go back and watch the next season of Barry. Because, mm-hmm. and I assume this is what you were going to get to. I can't. I can't binge stuff and feel like I've retained any of it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly it. Meg and I will kind of, you know, show premiere and. We'll try and maybe 
parcel it out. So we'll watch maybe an episode a night. We're not strict about it. You know, if we miss a night, then we miss a night. It's very rare that we'll find a show and then we'll just watch it all in a row, like an older show. We watched Golden Girls, but it took us a long time because there's seven seasons. Each season is 22 episodes. And it probably took us almost the whole year, which I think is pretty good instead of sitting there and going episode after episode after episode. I kind of miss that. I miss when Mad Men was on and an episode would premiere on Sunday evening. We'd watch it. You'd have a week to digest it. You'd read all these different things about it, think about it, maybe rewatch it, and then the next week would come and you'd watch the next episode. I miss that a lot. I know there are a few Hulu shows that their release uh, schedule is like that. Yeah, they're doing them. Doing one a week. One a week. And yeah, I, I totally agree. When I hadn't, I hadn't watched Lost prior to its last season, and it was one of those things where I wanted to be in on the conversation because sort of in the vein of what we're doing here, I knew people were really into it, and I didn't really have an opinion one way or the other. So I watched, <laughs> I watched the first five seasons in a month. <laughs> that that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, See, I I watched Lost week to week, starting with uh, season two, and that was another show where you would look up all the references, and then you'd see all the connections to previous episodes and previous seasons. And so by the end, it felt to me like this. Well, I don't know if it's fair, but. I got really invested in it, so I did a lot of homework with that show. And it felt like the kind of show that if you wanted to do that, you could. And there was enough information, ancillary information available where you could really dig deep into it. So it was a satisfying experience for me. I feel like if I had watched the show in a couple of months that I wouldn't have gotten that that same experience. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Kind of a weird tangent here, but there's an article on Polygon this week. The author said that there's no way to watch The Matrix Reloaded now the way the Wachowskis intended to when it came out because it was this big sort of multimedia in the moment event. There was the movie, but then there were plot threads that they deliberately left out to fill in with the tie-in video game that had close to an hour worth of footage. Did you ever play the game? Yeah, I did. Uh, I hear it's awful. It's really bad, but like but to this person's point there is such this 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 tremendous hype around it. You are just absorbing anything you could. There's the movie, there's this game, there's the animatrix stuff that they were kind of trickling out and I mean it's even 2003 is still sort of uh, ahead of the curve to be kind of dripping that stuff out online. But sort of to your point, they they had created this larger conversation that if you were aware of it and willing to engage with it made it feel like this bigger thing. But to sort of watch the movie in isolation now, sort of like you're saying, watching Lost after the conversation is over, yeah, there is that element missing. On the flip side, maybe that binging kind of helps shows like uh, Stranger Things, which you watch in a weekend, and once it's finished, the more you think about it, the more disposable it seems, the maybe more it falls apart. Um, So maybe something like, Binging helps for a show like that. I don't know, though. I mean, uh, to your point about Stranger Things falling sure. apart. I um, mean, I, I'm not a big fan of Stranger Things. I think it's fine for what it is. I think the shows and movies it references are 10 times better. So I think for me, the only way it works is by watching it all in a few days. I do think it's super disposable. I know other people really, really like it. So that's cool. I'm, you know, I think you like it more than I do. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. I just, it's because you're wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I, I understand what you mean. Uh, and, and sort of to that point, there's that pressure. Mm-hmm. When Stranger Things drops, you've basically got three days. And then everyone's like, what you, oh, oh, okay, you haven't... Well, you, you yeah. just go stand over there because we're going to talk about it because you haven't seen it yet. Well, we already talked about this in the last episode when we started off talking about spoilers and mm-hmm. how that's how Endgame was treated. They had lifted the spoiler ban, the directors, like two weeks after the movie was out. Oh, we, we can talk about it now. We can talk about characters that had died and stuff. And, and that's essentially the same thing. Oh, if you don't binge us this weekend, then you're out of the conversation and you're not going to know and or people are going to spoil it for you. So you better watch it all right now. That's it's weird. Their their branding with, with uh, Coke and Nike is pretty on point. Coke is bringing back new Coke <laughs> as a tie-in with Stranger Things. Yeah, and Nike is like reissuing a bunch of vintage yeah. sneakers, and people are eating it up. Maybe not as great as McDonald's bringing back their Szechuan sauce because of Rick and Morty. That that's true. That's pretty ridiculous. I guess. <laughs> Although that feels more like rewarding. A fan base that shouldn't be rewarded. <laughs> yeah, probably more. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, all of this is because today we're talking about the Venture Brothers. You know, we plan our episodes a few months ahead of time. So we knew in, I think, I think it was like March or maybe even April. And we're recording this in June that we were going to be doing an episode on the Venture Brothers. So we found a list on the AV Club of 10 episodes to watch of the Venture Brothers written by Sam Barsanti. As kind of our launching point, maybe a way to talk about the show. But because I knew we had several months and because I heard the show was heavily serialized, I was like, I think I'm going to try and watch the whole show. And so I started off maybe watching an episode here or there. And then eventually, as we got closer to the date for recording, I realized I was behind and then I just started plowing through and then I had to go back and rewatch the ones that are on the list in order to talk about them. So it was a really weird experience, it, it, which is, you know, the opposite of your experience. Right. Yeah. For me, this is something that up until the, the most recent couple of seasons, I watched week to week and, and was obsessed with and, and loved the, the quick elevator pitch for this show. Uh, this is an Adult Swim cartoon that the pilot premiered in 2003 uh, and it went to series in 2004. Big gaps in between seasons because they're only up to the seventh season just came out. So mm-hmm. it's been 15 years. The short version is that it's it's sort of a a parody of things like Johnny Quest uh, and adventure cartoons from the 60s. Hardy Boys. Hardy Boys. The, the premise is that uh, the Venture Brothers are the sons of uh, Doc Venture, who himself was the son of a, a famous scientist adventurer as a kid. And he just grew up. The idea is that if, if Johnny Quest grew up to just be this sort of sort of alcoholic shell constantly living in his successful father's shadow in this world of ridiculous over the top science and, and magic and costumed villains. I mean, that doesn't scratch the surface because it goes in a lot of weird directions. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Venture, um, ostensibly the main character of the show. He is the aforementioned Rusty that we talked about at the beginning of the show. Not my uncle, but uh, this scientist. So the creators of the show are, um, they go by the names Jackson Public and Doc Hammer. Jackson Public was a writer for the original Tick TV series, the animated version. Right, the, the Fox Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, and I guess while he was working on the show, he did a doodle 
of the two sons, which represent Hank and Dean Venture. And that was his initial idea for the show. And it just kind of, I guess, like an avalanche came to him real quickly. And he started pitching the show to networks right after that. And in his pitch book, his description for Dr. Venture is, is essentially exactly what it became. Dr. Venture hates his life. He hates his kids. He doesn't relate to them, has very little time for them, and is sorely disappointed that he did not spawn two super genius wonderkinds as he once was. But his dissatisfaction runs deeper, and his intense brooding and hair-trigger temper are only exacerbated by his steady ingestion of diet pills. <laughs> so that was the initial pitch for Dr. Venture. Sure. And if you're familiar with The Tick in any of its iterations, the comic book, the animated show, the two live-action series, think of those types of characters, and you get a sense of the, the sort of foundation of the world we're about to talk about, where characters are, are you know, costumed vigilantes or villains who have, like, weird puns for names... And, and they just like they lean into it. The sillier, the better. But at the same time, going with that description Matt just gave of Doc Venture, there's also this sort of simmering uh, disappointment and nastiness. <laughs> and yeah, oh, man, it's such a weird show. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a thing. If I were to pitch to friends that I have, I'd be like, oh, it's the tick, but sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 because what I think makes both the tick and this show great is that it not only skewers uh, its references, but it it does it lovingly. You know, there's a lot of affection for the their reference points. And it's not just, for Venture Brothers, it's not just Johnny Quest and Hardy Boys. It's 60s and 70s Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. It's Fantastic Four. G.I. Joe. James Bond. Uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Dan Clow's illustrations. Uh, Saul Bass. Uh, it's just endless. I can't believe that this show has existed and I've never watched it. Right. I mean, th- this this checks absolutely every box for you. Yeah. it's It references prog rock <laughs> and just like film noir and it just feels like something that was made specifically for me. These, these two guys who created the show, Doc Hammer and Jackson Public, are just, they're sponges for pop culture and everything they've ever watched and loved and even hated they've just absorbed it all and have managed to redistribute it into this this bizarre world where there's no idea too silly uh and and you're right to your point as sad and as dark and as pessimistic as the show can get it's never cynical yeah and there are uh genuinely surprising moments of of sweetness and humanity that come through you know when they're not fighting a guy named truckules who is exactly what he sounds like he's half man half truck or um or or going toe-to-toe with with a a nasally voiced villain who is obsessed with butterflies yeah um let's talk about the monarch uh, (laughs) have we have we earned that have we gotten i don't know i mean like i do think he's he's like one of the main characters before we move on to that sure as you were watching it, you were sort of giving me some real-time responses, and I could tell that you, you seemed, well, you just expressed it, you, you seemed shocked that you hadn't gotten to this show sooner. So what was your sort of familiarity with it, and, and what had maybe, had something prevented you from watching it? What no, kept you from engaging with it? I don't it? think so. I think when it premiered, it was just another Adult Swim show. 
I mean, that was my perception of it. It's like, oh, I like small doses of Aqua Teen, Hunger Force, and Sea Lab, and Harvey Birdman. Right. So that's that's good context. I mean, so when this came out in the early 2000s, most of Adult Swim were those really out there, you know, late night stoner comedy type shows that were 12 minute bursts. But then the Venture Brothers was was a half hour fully animated series as opposed to to these sort of bite sized flash cartoons. Yeah. And when I, I read that when he pitched the show to Cartoon Network and Adult Swim in particular, they wanted him to do that. And he's like, no, I, I have this plan for this. And so he had to give them the bigger pitch of what he thought the show could be. And they were pretty on board from the beginning, which is really startling, I guess. Well, I mean, it's a testament to how much they like the show because, as I said, it's been on for 15 years. It's only had seven seasons. Yeah. And um, they really let them take their time. I I think that's partly because Jackson Public and Doc Hammer are the main driving creative force. Oh, yeah. They for write, everything. They write every episode. They direct every episode. Yes. So I think that's the problem is that they're maybe overworking themselves. They're most of the characters in the show. They do voice most of the characters. I think that's a problem is they get to a point where just like, this is just too much work for us. I think in the most recent season too, um, Jackson stepped back from directing. I think he was like, uh, I think he stepped back to supervising director. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I will say when I started watching it, I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty clever. This is fun. At first I was just like, yeah, I don't know if this is essential, but I'm enjoying it, you know? Uh, And then it progressed as it progresses some big things happen that kind of shift the perspective of the show. Sure. That first season plays more like a send-up of all these things. Yeah. And then kind of culminates in a moment that's a, a very twist ending. And the second season sort of breaks the doors wide open and says, this is a world and we're going to explore every corner of it. And it's us taking all of these influences and making our own interconnected sandbox universe. And it suddenly goes from being a send up of all these shows that they were obsessed with to their version of it. And they create this rich mythology and there is nothing disposable. Mm -hmm. I mean, later on in the show, there are characters who appeared in the background in the first season who play pivotal roles in... In, yeah, in certain storylines. It, and... It's interesting because they say that, like, you know, there'll be a character that will just be, they won't even be shown. They'll just be mentioned. Some character's name will be mentioned, and then that character becomes an integral part of the show. To that point, Jackson Public, um, I have a quote from him. He says, It was dawning on us that no character is ever a side character. There's always a story to be told, which has been feeding us for season after season. Sometimes we go too deep into characters we should never have bothered with. But if you're going to have two henchmen hanging around all the time, yeah, give them personalities. You see that across the board. If they introduce a character, they're probably going to come back and they're going to have a connection to the deeper history of the whole show. Right. <laughs> or, or somehow have a bigger impact on the future of the show. And even beyond characters, they have given an incredible amount of time and care and attention to the logistics and the bureaucracy of this world. Yeah. You know, they look at something like G.I. Joe and they're like, oh, if there is this this force of good and this force for bad, they can't just exist as those sort of black and white things. There is a, There has to be an infrastructure and there is an entire elaborate sort of system of, of bureaucracies at play. There, things like the Guild of Calamitous Intent, which is like a, 
a union that all the bad guys pay into that has very specific and very silly rules that sort of dictate how they're allowed to interact with each other and with, you know, their their assigned arch nemeses. And I think that came about because they wanted to put these characters in situations where they were hanging out with each other, not fighting. Right. Basically just shooting the shit. And the first episode on our list is called Tag Sale, You're It. And I think that was partially the impetus for coming up with this strange bureaucratic rules for being a supervillain. Because uh, Dr. Venture in this episode has a yard sale and he lives on his father's property. Yeah, he lives he lives in the compound that his father had built. So he's essentially living in a a, a, 50, a 60s space-aged um super lab. At, at one point a character points out that he has a a sign that says um he has a sign at the yard sale that says laser death ray bargain bin. <laughs> like that's the kind of stuff that he's just trying to get rid of to make a quick buck. But it it opens the doors to legions of of villains who want to buy some of this stuff yeah maybe try to scope out his his uh his home but then like the comedy comes from them having to to check their super weapons at the door and walk through metal detectors and you know it, it takes these characters that you're familiar with seeing you know in a comic book or in a, a saturday morning cartoon as just like perpetuating these evil plots but putting them into these very mundane settings like a yard sale or having to do paperwork. And they're always in costume when they're doing it, so it's always super absurd. Yeah. Let's play a clip from the episode. You are one lucky duck. Oh, it must be dreamy to have a costumed nemesis chasing you, wringing his gloved hands in concern of your every move. You're kidding, right? It just seems so romantic. Oh, sure, it looks all glamorous from the outside, but really it's a huge pain in the ass. They send robots into your lab, break everything. And does my insurance policy cover arch enemies? No. I'm jealous. There, I've said it. If you want one so bad, take one of mine. <laughs> so that was um, uh, the the jealous gentleman in that clip was Dr. Orpheus, who is a character based off of Dr. Strange, who Dr. Venture is, is renting a wing of this compound to him and his daughter. Um, and Dr. Venture has just grown up being chased by these absurd characters uh, and is just so jaded by it and so tired of it. Whereas this, uh, you know, Orpheus sort of still sees the romance, kind of sees this world like like we see the world. Like, oh man, wouldn't it be great to be a superhero and like chase bad guys around? And yeah. Whereas Rusty has just, uh, it's been decades of this shit and he, he just can't be bothered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Orpheus might be one of my favorite characters on the show. And and it's strange to think of, no pun intended, but this character that's based off of Doctor Strange now because Doctor Strange is now, it's, it's pretty popular because of the Avengers movies and his own movie. But when this show came out, um, he was, you know, a, maybe a C-level Marvel Comics character. Yeah. But they were obsessed with him in the arcane sort of mysticism uh, that his comic book always had. So they, they kind of bring some of that into this world of science fiction and, and adventure stories. Yeah. Uh, just to throw this out there now, there is a clip that we will share that is eight minutes. Uh, it's it's done by um, the, the show creators in character, has one of the characters recapping the first four seasons. So 
if any of this gets too confusing, um, <laughs> we're going to have a handy uh, uh, cheat sheet for you. <laughs> I think, so let's backtrack just a bit and let's just go over, briefly touch on the main characters of the show. We already talked about Rusty, Dr. Venture, um, and he has two kids, and that's Hank and Dean. Essentially, when the show starts off, they're idiots. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, they Hank especially stays an idiot for a very long time. He does, but they Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're, yeah. they're very they're very goofy and bumbling. Hank looks like Fred from Scooby Doo. Yeah. Uh he's got like the white shirt and the blue kerchief. Yeah. And Dean kinda looks like his dad. And they have a bodyguard and that's Brock. Yeah. And that's voiced by um Patrick Warburton. Yeah. Who knew Jackson Public from doing the tick. And Brock is this sort of I guess you could say he's like an ex ex secret agent that was hired to be a bodyguard but is actually sort of the boy's nanny. Right. <laughs> but he solves every problem with violence. <laughs> yeah, he he is um in the within the the show he is notorious amongst the villain community for just being completely ruthless and bloodthirsty. Um there is no evil henchman he won't kill with his bare hands. Barehanded combat is preferred. <laughs> there is a sequence where he's trying to re-up his license to kill, and he refuses to use a gun at the shooting range. He's the kind of guy who is just at home working on his muscle car as he is <laughs> snapping a dude's neck. Doesn't he have a name for his car? Right. He named his car Adrian. He's kind of the boy's nanny. He loves Led Zeppelin. Yeah, he's the kind of guy who will get into a fight with a robot about whether or not Led Zeppelin is jock rock. <laughs> <laughs> but he has genuine affection for the boys. He does. Yeah. He tolerates Dr. Venture, maybe. But they do have a rapport. Oh, for sure. It's, it's a very odd couple kind of situation. Yeah. Outside of, of the family, the main villain is the monarch, who is very much a, a cackling classic old school villain, but he's he's also inept. I mean, most of the most of the people in this show are bad at what defines them. Yeah. Brock Sampson is really... <laughs> he's, he's a... He's an exception among few um, who excels at what he does. Uh, the monarch is just singularly focused on Dr. Venture for reasons not even his uh, his girlfriend or his henchman <laughs> can can really understand. His girlfriend is Dr. Girlfriend, who you know is this this gorgeous woman who who has sort of like a, a Jackie O kind of uh, yeah. look to her, but then has this very raspy voice. Which is a joke that at first they kind of beat in, and then eventually, yeah, they they just it kind of goes away. There are a lot of jokes like that in the first few seasons of the show yeah. where they do outgrow their sort of earlier edgy for the sake of it. Yeah, I will say that I even in the later seasons I still find her voice really charming. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's really it's I don't know I find it funny. Well, I think you know the joke around it is always initially it's it's other people making the joke at her expense. I don't think they ever play the character no. as a joke. I think what's great about her is that she is a lot like Brock where she's pretty competent. Right, exactly. She's Yeah, she's one of the... And she also owns her sexuality. She's in a relationship with the monarch and they make it pretty clear what she sees in him. <laughs> she she is a villain like him and she likes being a villain. Oh, uh, yeah. She yeah. revels in it. And, she, and again, she's great at it. But back to him, back to the monarch... What's interesting about the show in general is that he is, through the bureaucracy of the Guild of Calamitous Intent, he is assigned to Dr. Venture. 
so there's like this weird sort of hi- hierarchy where there are rules to him being the arch nemesis to Dr. Venture and no one else can interfere in him being the arch nemesis. And it's like a job. Like he has to punch in in a sense where every day, okay, I have to go do this because it's my job. And Venture, even though he's exasperated by it, he's like, well, this is part of this. This is part of what I do. So yeah, this guy's my arch nemesis. All right. Right. And actually I have a clip that sort of, this is also from the first season. uh, And this, for me, this is, this is a moment as I was watching the show when it was coming out where I realized that there was something special here. This is how the episode starts. We see the monarch giving an evil speech and Doc and the boys and Brock are all tied up from uh, a tree limb. And, and this sort of gets into that bureaucracy a bit. Well, if it isn't the late Dr. Thaddeus Venture, I'm glad you're still hanging around. I wanted to thank you for finding Grover Cleveland's presidential time machine for me. I'll give him your regards. Take your time, Monarch, because the minute you finish your little speech, I'm going to kill you. What are you, Obi-Wan Kenobi? Just look at you schmucks. I don't think I'm the one in danger here, considering the sad fact that right below you flows the mighty Amazon, teeming with the most gruesome fish to ever... The piranha? No. The shark? No. The piranha? No! And shut up! This isn't a quiz. Now, where was I? Right. <clears throat> the dreaded Candiru. A naughty little fish with a penchant for swimming up a man's urethra. To feed on the damaged tissue of the pitiful mass of flesh you once called your penis! That is a total myth. There is no such fish. It's two? No, there isn't! Time out! What? Time out! I'm really hurt! This isn't freeze tag! You can't do that! I'm serious! I really feel sick. Don't even think about Ralphing on me. Where are you hurt, boy? I don't want to say. Now, oh, great. Dane? Ugh, my no-nos hurt. What the hell are no-nos? That's the super adult term my teenage sons use to refer to their genitals in public, in front of their father. What well, duh. You all should be feeling the sting in your nethers. For in seconds, the dreaded Kandiru will seek out the tiny... <gasps> The kid's really hurt. Let him go. Why? I'm about to kill all of you anyway. What's the point, really? Because you have to. In 1969, the Guild of Calamitous Intent enacted an addendum to Article 47 of the Unusual Torture Act. So let's cut the monkey business. Go, Dad! Yes, go, Dad. And what's more, you arrogant little troublemaker, you have to let us all go. How the hell do you know that? (laughs) Check it out for yourself. Maybe I win. Ah, oh, you don't know when to stop with all this, do you? You just keep pushing my buttons. You're my arch enemy. That's what I do. That's my thing. <gasps> all right, fine. I have a Guild of Calamitous Intent handbook in my glove compartment. I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. So, so that that clip kind of encapsulates a lot of the show in a neat two minutes. There is them sort of lovingly homaging crazy supervillains and speeches and the idea that there are rules to these conflicts and that those rules are super boring and mundane and that at the end of the day these people are just they're just normal people in extraordinary circumstances but not like not in the uh, the uplifting inspiring way doc hammer said uh, when he started working on the show he shared uh, an artist space with uh, jackson public and they used to play darts and they'd come up with these little skits while playing darts doing crazy voices. A lot of their skits made it into the show, but they said one of the big things that they did was, and, and here's a quote, 
Um, but it's based around this idea that Aquaman and Black Manta were not who they were, but people that were much chattier and more social. It's almost like what the monarch and Dr. Venture became, which was actually people that have these bizarre jobs, chaser and chasey. They have this strange bureaucratic relationship in this paradigm of villain and hero. And that was what we did. We made up things. As a matter of fact, the monarch's voice came entirely out of not knowing what Black Manta sounded like. Black Manta has this deep voice. We didn't know that. So we were both screaming at the top of our lungs. And that exact voice is what Jackson did for the first monarch and the pilot. That joke will never get old to me. Do you remember the Looney Tunes shorts where it was the wolf and the sheepdog and they live together and their alarm goes off and they wake up and they make each other breakfast and they're drinking coffee and they're reading the paper and they get their lunchbox and they go punch in and their job is to be a wolf and a sheepdog. So for the next eight hours, that wolf is trying to steal sheep and his best friend is beating the shit out of him because that's their job. And then the whistle blows at the end of the day and they punch out and they just walk back home together. And the idea that that like these two animals just do that every day until they die, <laughs> because, you know, in a, in a very basic way, a wolf's job is to eat things. And in the context of a sheepdog, its job is to protect those sheep. And 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 just transposing that idea to that it's just a grind to things like a, like animals or a cartoon and comic book villains. I just love it so much. And I, I guess I just didn't really know that that's what the show was. I think so much of the first few years of Adult Swim was very ironic and cynical. And I mean, I, and I loved a lot of it. But this immediately stood out as something more ambitious. And now you see something like Rick and Morty, which hits a lot of the same kind of beats, kind of elevating the tongue in cheek and the homage that Adult Swim has sort of become known for into something a bit smarter and a bit more of its own. It's less co-opting than using these things as a springboard to get into its own exciting world. So the thing that opens up the whole show or and what made me really start to kind of really fall for it uh, happens at the end of the season. Um, so, so far we haven't really gotten into any big spoilers, but the show is pretty heavily serialized. So if you're listening to this and, and this sounds really interesting to you, I, you know, I would recommend maybe going to watch the show and coming back and, and listening and listening to us, you know, talk about the rest of the series. That being said, at the end of the first season, Hank and Dean die. We learn that they've died many times and that Dr. Venture brings them back because he has clones of them. And it really opens up the world of the show. But I have some clips from the season two premiere, which uh, uh, talk about this. What about the zombies? Now I call those clone slugs. Grew those years ago from nail clippings, I think. Anyway, after the slugs have been activated, that machine... Purgatory. Whatever. That computer feeds all their nocturnally recorded memory synapses. Their memories, hopes, and dreams. Their immortal soul! You're killing me with that crap. Just let me finish. That computer feeds synaptic data to their incubation beds. That information is supplemented with basic knowledge that my dad recorded for me so I didn't have to go to school. And that is why I didn't lose my virginity till I was 24. That is awful! You didn't even see her. It was horrific. Oh, it was awful that you would do this to your boys! Please, you do this kind of crap every day! That's different. Why? Because you call it by a different name? Church, lab, soul, synapses, purgatory, computer. Get over yourself. I have to lie down. If it makes you feel any better, the ones you knew weren't the originals. We've been through this, so I don't know, how many times, Brock? This will be 14. 14 times. (laughs) 
<laughs> so one thing that we had to cut out of that clip is this whole visual montage of the many times that Hank and Dean have died. Uh, and it's this great uh, gag-based montage. One of my favorites being Dean <laughs> literally running with scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or Hank uh, dressed up as Batman jumping off of the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there's a reference to one of them where Doc and Brock grew up mustaches. Mm-hmm. And they're just saying like, oh, remember that time we grew mustaches? Right, yeah, yeah. They're, they're so indifferent to these kids dying because it's happened so many times. But it's such, again, it, it, it sort of, it, it takes the premise of something like Johnny Quest, explores the irresponsibility of of a father and his assorted gang of adventurers and heroes taking children into these perilous situations. Doc found a workaround. He just (laughs) made clones of his kids. He recorded their memories while they slept. And when they inevitably died horribly, he just rebooted one of them. (laughs) It's so fucked up. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. And then the argument there uh, is Orpheus is a necromancer. Mm -hmm. And and that sort of... uh, that science versus religion debate. And they also do a fun thing, too. So the boys die at the end of the first season. The show is called The Venture Brothers. It opens with a, a new intro sequence to suggest that there are different Venture Brothers, that it's going to focus on Doc and the brother that it was revealed in the first season that he had absorbed in the womb and had come back uh, and, and declared himself the, the true heir apparent to their father's legacy. Yeah, and what's great about, his name is Jonas after their father, but they call him JJ, Jonas Jr., is he basically shows up and then instantly becomes successful. Oh, yeah. He he, he is immediately everything that their father was and that Doc isn't. Yeah, and he's what, like two feet tall? He's two feet tall. Yeah. Yeah, because he was basically just a, a tumor inside Doc for 40 years. <laughs> so two other characters, though, associated heavily with the monarch and doctor girlfriend are henchman 21 and henchman 24 who to to you know to to reference the quote you read earlier that if we're going to have these henchmen hanging around we're going to give them personalities yeah. so the the monarch has this army of guys just all dressed the same and these two have distinct voices and and become recurring characters who still just go by their numbers one of them has a kind of typical nerd voice one of them kind of looks like kevin smith kind of and the other one uh, sounds like Ray Romano. He kind of looks like Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're they're sort of like these, I wouldn't say they're bumbling. Well, yeah, they're sort of bumbling. They're sort of bumbling. But they're always on the outskirts of- They're the, 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 they're the C-3PO and R2-D2 of the yeah, series. Yeah, perfect. They're always kind of on the outskirts of the skirmishes between Venture and the Monarch. Yeah, they're only ever so interested in being henchmen. Yeah. For for a while. I mean, twenty later, 21 really- leans into it but they're sure. just kind of there they're commenting on things yeah they're almost like a less cynical version of comic book guy from the simpsons exactly kind of like hey isn't it cool to be a supervillain while actually not engaging in the specifics of being a supervillain right yeah they're pretty great characters so at the end of season one the monarch and and dr girlfriend split up and dr girlfriend ends up dating Phantom Limb, who is this super villain that you can't see his arms and legs. So he just looks like a floating torso. It's it's just a brilliant design. And so the whole season builds as he becomes the arch nemesis of uh, Dr. Venture. 
and the monarch is trying to get back into the good graces of Dr. Girlfriend. As we get through the season, we find out that Dr. Girlfriend and the monarch are, are sort of having an affair behind Phantom Lynn's back. It all comes to a head with this big showdown where Phantom Lim At their wedding. At their wedding. Yeah. Phantom Lim uses the might of the Guild of Calamitous Intent out of spite. And and he's portrayed as this very smooth, suave, almost Bond villain type of persona. Very again, very competent, but um you know, he he's sort of become complacent. He lives in a gated community for wealthy supervillains. Not unlike the rest of the characters, there's something strikingly normal to him underneath the fact that he has invisible limbs that could uh, totally mess a guy up just by touching them, I think is how they <laughs> describe <laughs> what his powers are. And he's just a petty, jealous ex-boyfriend at the end of the, the season. Yeah. Uh, and, and what's interesting, too, is Dr. Girlfriend tells the monarch that if they're going to be together, he has to stop arching Dr. Venture. Uh, Ar- arching is the, the industry term for yeah. for for professionally... Uh, terrorizing a good guy. <laughs> and unbeknownst to him, the henchmen for once capture the ventures. <laughs> right. Um, so when uh, Dr. Girlfriend shows up, she's basically like, what are you doing? And the monarch says, well, uh, I'm inviting him to the wedding. <laughs> He's my best man. <laughs> so uh, they wrap them into the wedding planning. Uh, and so you see a supervillain and his arch nemesis going through the process of you know, picking out things for the wedding, cake, outfits, all these things. And then it gets to the actual wedding day and the head of the Guild of Calamitous Intent shows up. It's the character they've been referring to as the Sovereign. Turns out it's David Bowie. (laughs) And he's there with Iggy Pop. And Klaus Nomi. And Klaus Nomi, yeah. And they all have superpowers. And David Bowie is um, a shapeshifter. A shapeshifter. Much like he was in real life. Yeah, yeah. To- <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's clearly they were yeah. like, oh, well, you know, he changed uh changed his persona every couple of albums. What would his superpower be? Oh yeah, shapeshifter. Shapeshifter. So the wedding gets surrounded by the the forces that Phantom Limb has at his disposal, uh, and and uh, the monarch's henchmen try to mount some sort of defense, but the the rare ace up their sleeve is that they have Brock Sampson with them, who actually knows what he's talking about. Right. A show of hands. How many of you are suicidal? Oh, wow, a lot more. Okay, now, how many of you love change? Uh, here he comes, boys. Oh, thank God. And I want you to give our new commander all the respect you were supposed to give 24. Listen up. I know that I've beat on most of you in the past. I forgive you, Brock Hansen. I was asking for it. I love you, Brock Hansen. We have to put all that aside and focus on getting Dr. Girlfriend back. Now, God knows a child could take you guys one-on-one. You know, we do the best we can. We try. But as a swarm, even you guys can be dangerous. Welcome to Big Boy Town. As of this moment, you are no longer butterflies. Today, you are murder flaws! In one decisive blow, we go for the head, cut it off, and watch the body die. We all fly for Phantom Limb's command ship! What? Um, we don't have anything to fly in. We just have a Monarch Mobile and a Nissan Stanza. Y'all have wings! Yeah, these are for show and not for blowing. Ah, no way! They work! What? Total champ! Why did anybody tell us these things work? 
The fact that they've been walking around for years in butterfly costumes and never thought to check if their wings worked. <laughs> Such a great gag. And the fact that they're also so, so terrified of, of Brock. Uh, or of their job in general. Yeah, that they're willing to be like, oh, yeah, we love you, Brock. You're the best. But there's a running gag that all the dead henchmen are buried <laughs> in front of the venture compound. Yep. That Brock, over the years, he murders them all, and he that's where they've all laid to rest. <laughs> it's so great. Um, so Brock flies to the rescue. Yeah, they, they, they end up getting yeah. to their stated objective. They get Dr. Girl from back from Phantom Limb. They foil his plot. Mm-hmm. But it sort of uh, it sort of sets up the next season where right where where uh, the monarch is not allowed to arch the ventures anymore. Yeah, there's also this random. So at the very very end of the episode, every episode rolls the credits and then there's a tag at the end of the credits. And at the end of the season two finale, it's the monarch and now Doctor misses the monarch. Doctor misses the monarch laying in bed post post coital. And she says, Monarch, I'm... And they're sort of setting up that maybe she's pregnant. The third season starts. She says it again. An explosion goes off. And then they never talk about it ever again. In interviews, they talked about how, like, oh, we thought it would be this great gag. And we had actually thought about making her pregnant. And then we realized that was a bad idea. Because her character couldn't be a bad mother. But then that would make things difficult for the show. So they figured they'd just ignore it. (laughs) Uh, you know, that gag aside, this show is constantly changing up the status quo from one season to the next. So we've established that the boys have clones, and that's why they they seem to be invincible and can survive all these perils. The third season ends with that those clones being taken away from them. And then suddenly we get this amazing gift as an audience to actually see them age because you don't get to see cartoon characters age bart simpson is still eight years old but suddenly and i know i'm getting ahead of myself here the boys start to change and they they kind of become their own unique characters in a way that they hadn't been able to before i think that's really when i started kind of falling in love with the show is when they killed off the clones so the boys could no longer use that as as their safety net at the end of the season three Brock sort of gets fed up with this kind of life and just takes off. So a new character comes in to be the boy's nanny, and that's Sergeant Hatred. (laughs) He was the temporary arch nemesis for Dr. Venture throughout season three. And the joke with him is that he's a pedophile. (laughs) It's something that they kind of go to every once in a while, and it's it never really works because I think the joke is that he's a pedophile. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing no. funny about it. But what's interesting about him is that unlike Brock, he's constantly trying to please the kids. And Brock's absence defines the kids' relationship to Sergeant Hatred, and that is compelling. And so fortunately, as the seasons progress, because Hatred sticks around, they they don't really go back to the pedophile gag too often it's another thing that when the show was younger and they were probably more inclined to indulge in these edgy but bad ideas like oh what if what if a character who has to be in close proximity to these teenage boys all the time is a a reformed pedophile that's a bad idea they had the foresight to (laughs) to eliminate other bad ideas before they got them 
into the show, but they very gradually sort of moved away from it and kept pushing it further to the periphery. But yeah, it's 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 cringy every time. It, it's not pleasant when it comes up. Yeah, and not that they're ever explicit about it either. It's just it's always sort of like they're they always kind of dangle the threat of of what that could mean, and, and it's just it's just icky. There's one episode on the list called Handsome Ransom. And that introduces um, a character that's voiced by Kevin Conroy, who is the voice for Batman and Batman in the Animated Series. And he plays Captain Sunshine, right? Captain Sunshine, who is sort of uh, an amalgamation of Batman and I guess Superman. Uh, and Hank becomes his ward. And I guess the gag is that he is that old joke about Batman and Robin and the inappropriate nature of their relationship. Yeah, they're playing with the thesis of that book that came out in the 50s, Seduction of the Innocent, that specifically pointed to the underlying and seditious uh, homosexuality pervasive in comic books and how it was corrupting you know, the youth of America. And unfortunately, that really stuck with the comic. That and the sort of the violence in horror comics were a couple of big things that, that kind of stuck and uh, loomed large over the industry for a long time, and, and it sort of, and then sort of became uh, like a winking joke that uh, you know Batman and Robin were were actually lovers. And it, it, over the years, you've seen countless sort of parodies and and creators playing with the the sort of the the myth around the legacy that this that this book sort of put into fandom. It uh, became it became a trope. It became a trope, but I do think that this gag is kind of a lazy one. I was surprised that this episode got was on this list. I think there are better episodes that are surrounding it. I don't think it's a bad episode, but I think that gag is kind of a one-note gag, maybe. But I, well, it's it's e- it's lazy. Yeah, but it's also the same thing that the sergeant hatred thing kind of got into that kind of one-note nature. But there is a brilliant gag in this, in that. Captain Sunshine is part of a team, and their alter egos are uh, a news team. <laughs> They're news anchors, which is a great gag. But the characters are awesome too. There's Barbie Q, who's kind of like has like hinges like a Barbie doll, but is almost like the Human Torch. Brown Thrasher, who's sort of like um, Hawkman maybe, and U.S. Steel, <laughs> who kind of looks like a wrestler. But my favorite is Ghost Robot. <laughs> <laughs> he just has a, a robot voice. It's amazing. <laughs> and he just looks like a robot with like a hood on or something like that. It's a great gag. Truculees is great. I like Think Tank a lot. Mm-hmm. Think Tank is almost like this character like um, Modoc. Oh, yep. He's like a brilliant scientist that's in just a giant head that's on top of a tank. Yep. There is a... There is a Spider-Man character who, oh, yeah, who just best. like a, an actual spider, has a, a web gland just over his asshole. <laughs> so, so he's like flipping around. He lands on the hood of a car, and he's just spraying webs out of his butt. Scaramantula is a good one, too. Scaramantula. A lot of the names are great. The designs are great, too. Oh, yeah. They ha- it has a real um, – it, it's sort of equal parts – Jack Kirby and Hanna Barbera. I mean, it clearly belongs to like to the the sort of Johnny Quest thing they're playing with. But there's a a whole family of characters that are based off the Fantastic Four. Oh, um, the the Impossibles. The Impossibles. Yeah. There's a, a kind of like a cross between 
I guess Galactus and Silver Surfer called the Observer, who just looks like a Jack yeah. Kirby character. There's another character that's like Dormammu that faces off against Orpheus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got like the big collar and like the flaming head. Too many characters. Too many characters. We haven't talked about Billy Quizboy and Peter White. Oh yeah, these who are, are integral parts of the show. They're Doc's college friends. Yeah, and he's essentially Quizboy is essentially a boy genius uh, that was successful on a, a popular quiz show, and he's lives and is friends with uh, Peter White, who is an albino. <laughs> And he's, he's the only real defining yeah. character. And he's a he's a computer scientist. They're both kind of geniuses. But we discovered, I think, like season two or three, that Billy Quizboy kind of idolizes uh, Doctor Venture. Yeah. Well, the the show really kind of folds in on itself when it turns out that not only did Doctor Venture live these adventures as a kid, but that there were TV shows and comic books about his life. So he is friends with people who worshipped the TV version of Rusty Venture. I mean, there are even episodes where it's sort of fuzzy as to whether or not what they're showing is a flashback to Rusty's real life or a clip from the TV show that he was that was based on his life. And Johnny Quest is actually in it. Action, oh, yeah. Action Johnny. And he's an alcoholic. Uh, you know, I mean, he's he's a junkie. Yeah. He's, he clearly has a lot of problems. Yeah. All from having this dangerous childhood yeah he he's he's worse off than doc somehow yeah because doc is a mess <laughs> uh, so uh, when i was watching the show as it was sort of premiering week to week especially when i was when i was watching it when i was in college jackson public's live journal was oh i found that yeah and it was great so we're talking about all these weird characters with goofy names but he would um post these production updates and talk about where they're at with writing the episodes and you know where in the production cycle but then he would post backgrounds and there would be these gorgeous paintings of a new interpretation of the venture compound or you'd be seeing locations you've never seen before and then he'd have you know kind of a lineup and some of the regular cast members would be in there but they'd have new outfits on to suggest where the season might be going or you'd see these bizarre one-off characters like a Trucules or a, a Dr. Septopus or the Observer. And it was just so cool that because it, it, it always felt like a cult thing, even for an adult swim show, and, and there seemed to be a genuine interest in fostering a connection with their fans. Uh, and that was it was, so, it was it was really exciting to get these little seeds, especially as you were, the weeks were building up to a new season. And like I said, it, it would be like a two- or three-year stretch between seasons sometimes. And they would just give you these little little breadcrumbs every once in a while. So I picked up this book that is um, essentially a making of, I guess. And it's interview style with uh, Jackson Public and Doc Hammer. And it breaks down every season and every episode. And a lot of those character uh, or model sheets and background designs are all in the book. And they, you're right. They're absolutely gorgeous. I think a lot of the background designs and a lot of the design choices are, are really fascinating because it kind of has this retro future look. It's kind of like World's Fair, World of Tomorrow kind of design stuff. Yeah, Space Age stuff. Mixed with a bit of Mad Men. I was really taken back about how much this show overlaps with Mad Men <laughs> in a lot of strange ways. 
There's even a season that ends with the monarch going back to his family home. Oh, yeah. It's right out of Mad Men. Directly. But they were made around the same time, so I, it was just complete coincidence. But that I think a lot of the similarities are people trying to s- escape their past or they're doomed to repeat them. Oh, yeah. This show is is dripping with failure. While we're still talking about that sort of, you know, that space age mid-century aesthetic, we haven't talked about the music for the show yet. And the music is amazing. It's composed by a guy named J.G. Thurwell. And it is very jazzy in the way that, like, the Get Smart theme or Mission Impossible. James Bond. James Bond. It it exists in, like, a parallel version of the mid-20th century. Because there is sort of, like, there's a weirdness to it that's very contemporary. But it's so rooted in big band and, and, and those types of film and TV scores. It can't be oversold because it's such a I can't think of the last memorable score I heard like in a movie sometimes TV shows love a great theme song but I mean start to finish the music is so well crafted Like I said at the start of the show, I watched all of this in like two and a half months uh, with a, I really ramped it up in the past few weeks. Uh, And it's so dense. We did an episode on Metal Gear and we talked about how ridiculous that story was. They weren't trying to be ridiculous. This is, but this is probably just as dense as Metal Gear. So it's kind of hard to talk about because when you start setting something up, you realize that it's based off of 20 other plot threads. Yeah, yeah and it all it all just kind of loops back on itself and makes references to things that happened years ago. The flip side is of you binging it over the course of a couple of months. I, I was revisiting an episode here and there, according to that list, after not having watched it in years. Uh, some of these I hadn't seen since they aired 12 years ago, which is has been fun because I, I sort of vaguely remember the broad strokes and then all the plot points kind of rush back as, as I'm watching these disparate episodes. But I think that you and I are both very attracted to this type of fiction. Oh, yeah, there's so much overlap to this in like the crazy deep mythology that's part of Marvel Comics. Or like a, like Star Trek. It is a living world, and we've talked about a couple of examples of this, but there, there is always, and I'm going to make a bad pun here given we're talking about guys in butterfly suits, but there is a butterfly effect that when something happens in this show, there are actual repercussions with it, and I think no one was expecting that. I certainly wasn't. I remember the first time seeing this, it was, it was just it was by accident. I think it was they were replaying the pilot on New Year's Eve in 2003, and then months went by, and then the show premiered, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that 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 weird thing I never thought I would see again. I didn't remember the name of it. Is that initial pilot different from the, the first episode? 
Yeah, it's done in Flash. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, I think it, it might be, I don't know if it was on the list. It's not on Hulu. It's not on the list either. I mean, all the pieces are there. But yeah, it looks a little janky. It's The character designs are, are a bit rougher. As the show progresses, it becomes simpler, but also more comic booky. Mm-hmm. Um, there's interesting, in the Giant Venture Brothers book, there's a section that one of the storyboard artists drew a how to draw for all the characters. And it shows basics for muscles and facial shapes and all that stuff. And a lot of it is saying this is too complex simplify this especially when it comes to musculature and form whether it's standing up a character that stands up straight all the time or a character that kind of hunches over so there's so much specificity in the design of the characters even if there is a simplicity there and even even that is an element that I've always loved about the show like I was saying how they seemed very interested in engaging with their fans beyond the intricate narrative and the characters gradually becoming, you know, so much more deeper and nuanced as the show went on, they loved to let you know what they were pulling from. And as a kid who couldn't get enough hearing about how they made special effects in movies work, you know, I loved the process. And then beyond that, I loved following them down their rabbit holes and finding out what it was that led them to Dr. Orpheus or, um, you know, getting into the the weeds with the stacks upon stacks of James Bond references in like a sequence, where they're just like, we're gonna cram everything in there, yeah. and this is how we did it, and we want you to know that because we love this stuff. We know that other people are as obsessive as we are. There's an episode where Doctor Venture is trying to get Dean interested into becoming a scientist. And he feels one of the ways to become a scientist is to get interested into prog rock. He sits him down, gives him some records and some headphones, and Dean goes on this kind of trippy, <laughs> almost... He goes on like a, a King Crimson-fueled vision quest. Yes, yeah, and they don't actually use any real prog rock songs, but the attention to detail to the songs that were written for the show... It just felt like some lost 70s prog record. And yeah. I was just like, I couldn't believe the attention to detail. The thing is, though, we talked about how dense the show is. But at the same time, it works because every decision is based off of character motivation and not necessarily plot. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot in in prior episodes about how storytelling choices should be motivated by character and not necessarily by plot. Uh, And there's a quote from Doc Hammer where he talks about their approach to writing the show. And he says, my thought was you take whatever it is and you just throw yourself into it and it will write itself. The characters will come from faith that they are there. It was really the first time I heard somebody else with a theory a lot like mine. He had a similar idea about writing, which is there is no situation that is unwritable. It's what you bring to it that makes it writable. Great plots don't mean shit. It's how each plot is handled, how characters are handled, and how you invest yourself into these characters, which is why the Venture Brothers is so character-heavy, because it's what Jackson and I think about. We both do it, and it's one of the reasons why our episodes are indiscernible from each other. I thought that was great, because it talks about what we talk about all the time. And a testament to the show is that despite the mythology, I don't think someone could 
walk into an episode in the middle of the fifth season of Game of Thrones cold and be able to enjoy it because there's too much plot. If you hadn't seen it all, you're going to be confused and you're going to be bored and you're going to be interested. But I think the reason this continues to exist and work on Adult Swim is that those characters are so well-defined that you could walk into an episode in the middle of the fifth season having never watched any of it and pretty quickly know who these people are about and get a decent sense of the kind of world they live in. Because it's still a comedy at the end of the day. You don't need to watch Seinfeld in order. You can watch any episode at random having never seen one and you you get what's happening. But then you'll never know how George got his job with the Yankees. It doesn't matter. It does to me. <laughs> I had thought about that a lot because I don't want to just follow this list. I'm, I'm going to start from the beginning. And I was glad I did that because there is a lot of serialization. Oh, I'm not saying it's not rewarding if you yeah. stick with it or start from the beginning. I, but I, I am curious, someone coming in cold to just starting uh, with a random episode in season five. I don't know what that would be like. I do think some of the jokes will play because I think not that they're broad because they're uh, their jokes are very specific. I think if you went into it knowing their reference points that you would. OK, I get what the show is doing. I don't know if it's rewarding unless you do watch a lot of it and i do think that's in some ways it is a detriment to the show because i do sometimes they go up their own ass yeah uh, a little bit and they admit that too uh, sometimes it's just it's it's too much you know yeah um apropos of nothing i'm just going to play this clip which i think is part and parcel of uh what is great about the show hank you take out the lights i'll get the nazis I mean, if Oswald can squeeze off three hot slugs in six seconds, old hatred can drop evil Nazis in half that time. Is it me, or does, like, every Nazi want to clone Hitler? It's, like, the only thing they think of. It seems that way, right? I guess when everybody hates you, you fixate on making rotten Hitlers. How can you say that about Hitler? I love Hitler, and Hitler loves me! He's not all bad! Hitler just needs someone to believe in him. Can't you just give Hitler a chance? Dean, Hitler is a mass murderer! He's pure evil, and you have to kill him! I won't destroy the only thing I've ever loved! I won't kill Hitler! Never, ever! <laughs> you might want to look at your face. Oh, come on! Should I ask RuPaul to paint my camo face? I'll kill Hitler. I've killed hundreds of Nazis before, many of them with a grenade launcher. Medal of Honor, Heroes 2. You can also blow up a submarine. He must be killed with this golden dagger. And only after the cleansing of fire! And Dean is the only one who'll let get close enough to do it. All right. <clears throat> Everybody out. I gotta, I gotta wipe. Good Lord. Have you been using the toilet under there this whole time? I, we are at war with Hitler again! This is how it's done on the front line, soldier! Hank, hand me that magazine. So, if someone was a fan of the Venture Brothers, Tony, are, are we not going to explain that? No, Hitler was. <laughs> we don't need to explain that. No, I think uh, I don't want to get people to get the wrong impression about us or this show. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, in this instance, this plan to clone Hitler, uh, they brought him back in the body of like a an adorable a dog. dog, right? Yeah, <laughs> he became Dean's dog. Dean doesn't want to kill Hitler. <laughs> uh. If someone were a Venture Brothers fan, what's the next step? I don't think I'm going to. Uh, if I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll concede to the question and say uh, we should all probably go watch uh, the Tick that was recently canceled on Amazon. 
It's good. Yeah, I, I started wa- after, as we were watching through this. I started it for the first time, and yeah, it's it takes it's a while to pick up, but once it settles in, it's really funny. And the second season's really good. Yeah, and unfortunately, it just got canceled. And Ben Edlund, the creator of The Tick, wrote a couple of Venture Brothers episodes. Yeah. To his credit, I can't believe that 30 years later, that guy has gotten an animated series and two live-action series produced based on a character that started in the newsletter of a regional comic book chain. He loves it. Yeah. I, I mean, I th- the creators of Venture Brothers are the same way. In every interview, they're just like, oh, man, we're just so burnt. Who knows? Who knows if this is going to be it? But then they're like, well, what else are we going to do? We love this. This is our, our life. This is our world. So they keep going. Yeah. How about you? Um, I'm going to recommend um, this album. Are you familiar with the rapper MF Doom? Yes. Yeah. So um, around 2000, I think it's around 2006, he put out a record under the pseudonym of King Ghidorah, which is, you know, reference to the villain from Godzilla movies. And it's a record that samples a lot from old Godzilla movies, but it's so dense with pop culture references. And it's a lot of fun. It's similar in the sense that it's borrowing from so many things, all of his favorite kind of pop culture, culture little artifacts uh to put together into this pretty great rap record so i think you know if you have an open mind for for venture brothers and what they're doing then you should go and listen to king Ghidorah. what are we talking about next time oh boy so let's let's set the stage here we've been very fortunate in that our episodes so far have been things we've enjoyed Uh, whether they were things neither of us had seen or listened to before or we were sharing something with one another. We've we've more or less been on the same page. But one of the big reasons that I wanted to do this show at all was not to just resolve my blind spots, but there are certain aspects of pop culture that come with uh, a bit of baggage and maybe some preconceived notions. And I don't like that part of myself that makes opinions about things that I haven't seen or listened to yet. I don't like that part of you either. I know. <laughs> it's not my best side. <laughs> that is why we're talking about fish next time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have a special guest coming, too. Yep, we've got uh, our, our friend Chris, who is the host of Wee's Talking Wee's to Thee, which a, is- A Weezer podcast. A Weezer podcast. Yeah. He's also- Are it, they called fish heads? Is I, there? Is I don't there know. We're going to have to ask him. Fishers? Yeah. Fishies? I think he's probably an outlier when it comes to being a fish fan, although he is a pretty big fish fan, but I don't he doesn't strike me as a your typical fish fan. See, there are those preconceived notions coming through. I'm pretty sure Chris will validate some of this. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, so this is uh this is going to be interesting. You know, I I have had an opinion about fish uh-huh. as long as I've known about fish. Same. But I never listened to fish. Yeah. Same. And now we have listened to them. <laughs> and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, it, I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Yeah, if you want to catch up on episodes you may have missed, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. I think they're still calling it that. I don't know. Apple's mixing some shit up. They are. Uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at What Did We Miss. And as always, thanks to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence for hosting us. Follow them on Twitter at What Cheer Club 
and you can learn more about them on their website at whatcheerclub.org. We will see you next time.